Hi, and welcome to the Brave Parenting Podcast, an examination of the Bible and how parents can apply God's Word to raising kids in a culture saturated with media and technology. We look at everyday issues from a biblical worldview so that you can trust the sufficiency of Scripture and apply its truth to your life as you raise and disciple your kids. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Kelly and Chelsea back here with another Worldview Wednesday. We're looking at headlines that were popular over the past two weeks, and we're going to think biblically about them, especially how they intersect with parenting and the ever-present influence of media and technology. That is right. We're going to be um, looking at fat shaming. Is it bad and is exercising racist? I mean, no wonder childhood obesity is soaring. We're going to be looking at tech companies that want your kid's birth date, should you tell them. And we're going to be looking at Megan, that new movie. Kel, have you seen the previews for that movie? I haven't. Just what I read in this article. Is it creepy? It's creepy. We're going to be looking at Megan and the challenges that parents have to consider kids' exposure to to technology. And lastly, three takeaways on the Seattle school's lawsuit against big tech. No trouble thinking biblically about these at all. So let's go ahead and kick them off. So the first article comes out of Fox News, and it says, Fat shaming is bad and exercising is racist. No wonder childhood obesity is soaring. So this came out on January 10th, 2023. And so this article, interesting enough, when I went back to it, they actually changed the headline. So it's not that anymore. I guess that was almost too clickbait-ish. <laughs> so whatever that means, but it did make me click on it because I was like, what? <laughs> so here's what they have to say. Childhood obesity is a serious problem in the United States. Because of this, the American Academy of Pediatrics released new guidelines for treating childhood obesity for the first time in 15 years, emphasizing the need for intensive action, including medication and surgery. So over the past three decades, childhood obesity rates have tripled in the United States, and today one of three children is overweight or obese. While the pandemic and overall increased use of electronic devices have largely contributed to rising obesity rates in our youth, they are not solely to blame. The article goes on to say that the term fat shaming was born over the last decade and that has led to many physicians being too afraid to have honest discussions about weight with patients. So doctors have been told to refrain from using the words overweight and obese as widely accepted medical terms, and instead replace them with phrases like above a healthy weight in an effort not to make someone feel bad about excess weight. Furthermore, the article says that mainstream and social media are promoting the trending movement advocating for body positivity and self-love, including being overweight. Social media influencers and other famous faces have taken over pop culture with millions of followers trying to cultivate a platform to promote plus-sized bodies. And the article finally says, a recent Time Magazine interview even suggested exercise to be an activity with roots in white supremacy. The piece, titled The White Supremacist Origins of Exercise, describes how exercise began in the early 1900s by white Americans seeking to strengthen their race amid increasing immigration. So here's kind of where my day job and brave parenting intersect. So I'm here to tell you that this article, or at least 
the fundamental facts of it is not hyperbole. The very same day that the American Academy of Pediatrics released this new recommendation, another pharmacist and I actually wrestled over this question of why is this appetite suppressant being prescribed for a seven-year-old? We literally were filling the prescription and questioned why was this happening? So we called the doctor to clarify (laughs) what was happening and they, yeah, they confirmed this is an obesity diagnosis and they were prescribing this. And so no lie, when the Apple newsfeed headline appeared on my phone a couple hours later saying that the AAP had changed their guidelines, well, first, of course, I thought, oh my gosh, my phone is listening to me. <laughs> but then I realized these are just what the new recommendations are and they're already being implemented. So I immediately kind of took to the story. But here's my, here's my take on the story as I think through it with my biblical worldview In the medical world, diagnosis codes are imperative. They designate a defined and identified reality for the patient. But then there are these people's feelings, the patient's feelings, which do not define reality despite how much the modern world wants them to. Therefore, changing the language to accommodate feelings is absurd, whether it be in medicine or wherever. You know, identifying an objective reality is not shaming. If someone says to me, you are tall, I am not going to interpret that as shaming because it's true. I'm 5'11". Like this is an objective reality of mine. A doctor telling someone that they're overweight, by definition of a BMI, they are really overweight. This is not shaming, especially when it comes from a doctor. This is identifying an objective reality. And we have to stop accommodating people's feelings at the cost of truth. We see this type of linguistic theft and sort of language gymnastics throughout so many areas, so often at the intersection of biblical truth and secularism. You know, someone with a sick agenda and power to do this, you know, wants to make pedophilia more socially acceptable. So they change the name to minor attracted person. What? That's so crazy to change the name to that just to make it less offensive. So instead of calling sin, sin, the secular world morphs its definition. Instead of you know, arrogance and selfishness and self-aggrandizement, you know, they're changed to following your heart and self-love and self-care and really positing themselves against the truth of God's infallible and inerrant word. They label anyone who brings up absolute objective truth, they label them as intolerant or inflammatory and hate speech and bigotry. By altering the definition of words, the secular world resolves, you know, its cognitive dissidence with the God of creation. They resolve that internal conflict with their sinful flesh and harmful behaviors by shutting down anyone who doesn't approve with their truth. And that's really what's being highlighted in this article. Doctors can no longer tell someone that they're obese because what? It's going to hurt their feelings. There are long-term and fatal complications that go along with obesity and is telling someone, you know, a softened version of, well, you're actually a little bit above a healthy weight. Is that going to shake them out of their unhealthy eating habits and sedentary lifestyle and maybe cause some change? You know, we aren't changing the definitions of words for cancer. Why is that? I think it's because it's not something we have control over. You know, there's an objective fact that sometimes bad cells start multiplying. Granted, you know, sometimes humans can contribute to that, but generally speaking, We aren't softening the words because the diagnosis doesn't shame someone because of their bad choices. We've talked about before about shame and how 
it's a proper feeling that is meant to be used to lead us to repentance. And hearing that you are obese or that your child is obese or overweight may bring up feelings of shame or embarrassment, but that should lead us to repent that maybe you have indulged yourself or your child into you know, gluttonous or overindulgent love for food or a sedentary lifestyle or too much screen time. So since we cannot speak the truth in fear of someone feeling shame, there's no repentance and there's no transformed lives. And so here we have the American Academy of Pediatrics stepping in and saying, let's give them drugs and let's perform weight loss surgeries to get this under control. This has got to be the worst recommendation I've ever heard. Chelsea, what's that saying? Teach a man to fish and you'll, he'll eat for a lifetime, but give him a fish and he'll eat for a day. What happened to learning valuable lessons through consequences? You know, diet aid drugs and weight loss surgeries are just temporary fixes of, of heart issues. They don't, that does zero for the unhealthy eating habits that stem from the heart. It is the heart and the habits that need to change in order to bring lifelong change of healthy eating. Um, and of course, this does not discount like some people have genetic type of dispositions. I, mean, I really am just talking about there is an overindulgence. We know they have unhealthy eating going on, um, but the kids aren't, their undeveloped brains are not going to learn anything from these dramatic Band-Aid solutions. And, you know, thinking scripturally, um, I, you know, I immediately go to 1 Corinthians 6 that tells us our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we show honor to God by honoring our bodies. Romans 12.1 tells us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. But, you know, even more than that, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, you know, he goes on in chapter 3 and he's talking about how he can boast in all these things of the flesh, which is often what we see happening with a lot of celebrities and influencers who are kind of, quote, plus size. Is there boasting in the flesh of, look at me, I'm still beautiful and I'm plus size? And I'm not saying you're not beautiful. I'm saying that there's health concerns maybe um, associated with that and you know where it's a heart issue. But he's saying that all of that, all that you could boast about, is it's just all a loss compared to knowing Christ. Paul says it's worthless to boast about anything, you know, compared to the, the value of knowing Christ. And he continues by saying, hey, to this Philippian church, the enemies of the faith, they're going to come to persuade you and to think differently. So you can think, hmm, people on social media, they are definitely going to try to persuade me to think differently. Well, your goal, Paul says, for living a godly life is to maintain the line that you have learned and have been taught by watching me. By, that's Paul saying this, by watching me, everything that you've learned, do this. Well, today, I think that looks like us as our children. It's maintaining this biblical worldview. Paul says that to these believers in Philippi, that the enemies of the cross are those whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame. And they set their mind on earthly things. That's tragic. To me, this is so tragic. And Paul even says that he, in verse 18, that he weeps over the sad state of these people who are enemies of the cross. And this is how I think we should feel about, we should be weeping and sad for the children suffering from obesity at such a young age, because whether it's them or it's the person who's feeding them or whatever that's going on, there's a sinful obsession there. And they need adults to step in and help them, not necessarily to put them under the knife or put them on drugs, but our hearts should be broken for kids that age who are indulging in such fleshly desires um, or gluttony or 
being told by celebrities and influencers that their bondage to food, to video games, to drugs, to social media, to pornography, that isn't bad and you shouldn't be shamed for, you know, any of your sinful desires, but you should be honored and, you know, venerate it for, for whatever it is that you, you know, whatever it is that you're doing that you love. So I think though, instead of, you know, instructing these kids of how to put to death the desires of the flesh, which is Romans 8, 13, right? We need to share the gospel with these kids. We need to share the fact that God loves them, that he has a design for them, that healthy living is a thing and not just let's mask it with drugs and uh, surgery. Gosh, that's heartbreaking. And this just breaks my heart. It's tragic. And okay, I've talked enough. I was trying to understand how this article defined fat shaming. I mean, is fat shaming defined as just using hate-filled speech to an overweight individual, or is fat shaming defined as just using words that correctly address a patient's reality, reality like you, you mentioned earlier? Unfortunately, I think the most pervasive worldview is the one that appeals to personal happiness. You know, being happy and attaining happiness, no matter what the cost, even if it denies reality, it's been a dominant worldview. I mean, for centuries, but I feel like more now than ever, it's be- because everyone can be connected, because we have so much media, because we get so much news, it's spread a lot quicker, a lot a lot um, vaster, more like wildfire. But even more now, people have to agree with my personal happiness and affirm it. Yeah. This worldview, yeah, like I said, it seems to be getting stronger. It's slipping into more and more areas, including medicine, as we just, you know, realized we listen to. And I don't know, maybe a listener will agree with me, but it appears to me that the culture today, it feels a lot different than the one I grew up in. And honestly, I'm not, I'm not that old. I think everybody would agree with you (laughs) that culture is different. Whether you're in your thirties, your forties, I think even people in their twenties are already looking back and saying, wow, it's a lot different than when I was a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Cause when I, like when I was a kid, the appeal to personal happiness was still relatively thwarted by reality. I mean, we when I was a kid, we still recognized and acknowledged reality. For example, in health class, I mean, I can remember being shown pictures of black lungs from chronic smokers or being shown pictures of sexually transmitted diseases in health class. I mean, I guess you could say fear was a teaching tactic, but more than that, it was the future reality of what could happen if your only pursuit was personal happiness. But we're not teaching that anymore. We're not showing kids what the consequences are if your only pursuit is personal happiness. So yeah, if all you ever wanted to do was like puff your way to cancer, then you could. But hey, this is your future reality. Or if all you ever wanted to do was feel gratified through sexual experimentation, then you could. But this is your future reality. Yeah, all of that is downplayed now. It is. Yeah. The future consequences are very much downplayed. I think it's a very good point is it's very much now of you do you, be happy right, right now. Right. Right now. Like do yeah, whatever Amazon, it is. Amazon Prime, your happiness. Yes. You get it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm going to throw it out there because I think, I think it matters when we deny reality, especially when people in places of authority, like pediatricians who have medical knowledge over someone's future or parents who are called by God to raise their kids, if you are denying reality, you are neglectful because there are consequences that we cannot escape no matter how much you wish you could escape them. 
happiness is not ever going to get rid of those realities, those real consequences that we all have to face if all we pursue is sin. So I was just, I was kind of thinking through some of the Proverbs about loving truth because really this is what it comes down to, truth. So Proverbs 12, 17, an honest witness tells the truth, but a false witness tells lies. Mm -hmm. Proverbs 12, 19, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue lasts only a moment. Proverbs 14, 25, a truthful witness saves lives, but a false witness is deceitful. And really, when it comes down to it, the Bible is the ultimate source of truth and reality because there are very real eternal consequences based on this life. But the question is, are we willing to tell the truth? Are we willing to speak truth and love to the realities of the people around us? I think we talked about it maybe even in our last Worldview Wednesday. We talked about what it meant to be a people lover. Well, people lovers are willing to be people confronters as well, just like Paul was in the epistles as he confronted multiple churches in his travels. But I once heard the question, how much do you have to hate someone to not share the gospel? And that always struck me. At every risk, cost, and loss, the apostles spread the gospel, which explained the reality of life on this side of heaven and the reality on the other side of heaven. Yes, sometimes guilt and shame is associated with that reality, but that's okay. It's not meant for bad. It's meant for good because we want people to know there is a holy God who wants to be in a relationship with us, but our sin separates us from him. So he offered his son as a sacrifice for that sin so we could be in a relationship with him. Our sin was imputed on him and his perfect sinless record was given to us. And that is truly amazing grace, but it starts with a very devastating reality that we are fallen and broken people. But it really only happens if we're willing to recognize reality even more when someone is willing to tell us about that reality at the risk of being rejected, mocked, shamed, or more. I will, I will never, ever be more thankful for the people in my life who shared the gospel with me before I was a Christian mm-hmm. at, at the risk of being rejected, mocked right. by, my own, by my own lips. You know, it takes a, a courage. Yeah but a deep faith in Christ. Yeah. And, you know, as parents, when I look back on my own childhood, growing up, college, all of that, I relied on my parents to keep me grounded in reality. Yeah. I mean, they may say, Kelly, your feelings about this (laughs) doesn't matter. You know, like you need to make a a choice about which college or this, that, you know, whatever. I'm thinking of a couple different scenarios, but I relied on them to keep me grounded to reality. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that when we adopt as parents a secular worldview, a view that the world is saying happiness is supreme, that instant gratification is okay, we're, we're just doing such a, a, a neglect, like you said, it's, it's, it's neglect, neglect yeah. and it's such a disservice to our kids. So Yeah. Okay. So this is our next article. Tech companies want your kid's birth date, but should you tell them? So tech companies already know all about you and your family, including your location, interests, and demographic details. But recently, they've been asking a question that can feel a little too personal. Streaming services, games, and social media companies want to know your children's birth dates. When Disney Plus started demanding that existing users enter their children's exact birth date to continue streaming, many parents were alarmed. 
in the past, most apps and services asked you to confirm you were over the age of 13 when creating a new account, but not give a birth date. There is no law requiring that any tech company have a birth date or exact age for adult or child users, but regulations in the United Kingdom and some coming to California will push for more privacy protections based on age. Quote, there is more legal requirement to treat people in age-appropriate ways, and to do that correctly, you need to have a pretty good idea of how old someone is, says Josh Golan, executive director at Fair Play, a nonprofit children's safety group. Why would parents not want to share birth dates? Well, a birth date is considered a piece of personal identifying information which can be used to identify an individual. For most adults online, this type of information is already available, but most children don't have big online footprints yet. Many parents weary of their children's information being used for anything from marketing to identity theft are reluctant to hand over the date to tech companies. What can you do instead? The solution, if you're comfortable, could be to lie, some experts said, but just a little lie. Quote, it's a shame because we should be able to trust that these platforms are only collecting our children's birthday and using it for exactly the reason they say, but we can't really trust that. So I think lying is okay. Golan said. I think lying is okay, end quote. <laughs> yeah, that's just where it leaves. That's just where the article ends. So I, I was super torn on this article. Like as a Christian parent, both of these options seem uh, just pretty horrible. I don't want to share my child's um, date of birth because while mo the motivation seems to be to protect the children, we know that people are fallen and that info could absolutely go into the wrong hands. Back in the day when social media was new and exciting, a lot of us parents overshared our kids. And as deep fake technology becomes more accessible, and right alongside that growth of deep fakes is the rise of pedophilia from porn addiction, well, you can the horrors are almost unimaginable. But our oversharing wasn't completely malicious, right? We were just kind of ignorant. There isn't any guarantee that it, the date of birth you share with a streaming platform isn't going to go sideways. So there's the first problem. But the second problem is lying. Is entertainment for your child so important that you should lie to get it? Again, I don't know if I agree with that choice. So then what am I left with? I kind of feel like I'm just left with good old-fashioned movies and cartoon series on DVD or, you know, brought, bought through like a, a platform like Amazon. Plus here at Right Parenting, we would even recommend that the less is more approach to kids in entertainment is the best practice. I mean, I get it. We all love entertainment and I enjoy it too. But we don't have to be slaves to it. We don't have to compromise valuable information or our moral compass in order to get it. We just have to adjust. So maybe we decrease the kid binge and increase the kid play. Or we increase the I'm bored time, increase books on tape, increase read aloud time or craft time. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, what do you think, yeah. Carol? I like right. Well, so yeah, ex exactly what you said. So on one hand, I can see how getting the date of birth can serve children better online. For example, a platform knowing a child's exact age could prohibit them from seeing content that the platform deems inappropriate for that age. So I, in a way, I get that. You know, For example, say Disney Plus, they know um, your child's birth date, so they're going to ensure that your four-year-old isn't watching, I don't know, the Buzz Lightyear's homosexual kissing scene. Maybe. But that still requires massive trust on us because who defines morality and right and wrong and appropriateness for these platforms? Do we think that Disney actually has our children's best interests at heart? 
Because what Disney says is okay at 17 years old, you know, TikTok is saying is okay at 13. Who is defining these standards of right and wrong, good and evil, based on age? See, that's that's the problem that we get into with this. And this is the primary reason why we ourselves need to know our own value system, our own standard of morals in advance as we approach these type of questions, these ethical questions. We need to have them solidified and hopefully solidified under God's unchanging moral standard. A second point I think, you know, you kind of made and just to elaborate on, you know, as more companies ask and require date of birth, the most tangible concern is that of like data breaches. When a child's name and date of birth can be acquired through hacking or poor security and encryption, you know, it poses a risk to your child's online security. Think about how you verify who your child is online and over the phone. I know if someone calls me in the pharmacy, you're going to have to give me the date of birth of your child so that I know who it is we're talking about. When I log on to an online portal for my kids' medical care or therapy, I have to put in their date of birth because it verifies that I know this is my child, this is their date of birth, right? So these are, the the date of birth is a factor that is used in verification. Well, Anybody who has access to your child's name and date of birth could then acquire more private information, health data, access to online accounts, right? So that is, that is really the, the bigger concern. But if you think biblically about this, I'd have to say it really just involves applying wisdom, evaluating, as you said, Chelsea, the need. What is the need for a certain piece of technology? Is it so great that you have to require the date of birth? and Let's just be honest, parents, if you're posting on social media, happy birthday to your child or this wonderful birthday party that they had, you're already telling these tech companies what your child's birthday is. It's not hard for them to figure it out. So based on our own oversharing, as you mentioned, we could already be revealing it. (laughs) I mean, so that's where wisdom can really be applied is, yeah, I may not want to type the exact day in. But if we're putting on Instagram, you know, pictures of our, our five-year-old's birthday party, well, <laughs> they already know and they could already share it. And so that's really, I think, the reality is us as parents is we have to apply just general wisdom, knowing that tech is advancing and sometimes maybe nefariously, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. We don't really know if we can trust all aspects of have these tech companies having us and our kids best interest at heart. So we need to think of five years in the future, 10 years in the future, how much information of my child is going to be available online and what could that possibly mean? And if the possibilities are endless in the negative sense, then we really need to have some discernment and back off. Because like you said, how, I mean, entertainment's great, but really it should never define our lives. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I 100% agree. So speaking of entertainment, let me just jump right into our next headline, which is about the movie Megan. And I'm going to define Megan. The E is a three. Mm-hmm. So it's like M3GAN. Okay. So it's just so creepy. when you see these, um, these movie trailers, this is what we're talking about. So Megan challenges parents to consider kids' exposure to technology. This article was posted on January 13th on parents.com. So Megan is a movie about a toy, a toy that is connected to the internet of things, as they say, 
meaning that it depends on a screen or a tablet of sort to function. Well, all is well until Megan learns enough to take over everything and everyone. The author of the article writes, quote, while I know my kids' toys cannot come to life and try and murder us, the film did... <laughs> Sorry, I have a... I struggled to not laugh when I read that headline because that's... My eyes, like, bugged out. I was like, oh, man. This is just the thing of horror movies, I guess. And this is, I think, the category that this will fall in. I don't necessarily know if it's scary. I think it's more horror. horror. But she says, okay, so I know my kids' toys are not going to come to life and try and murder us. The film did raise some real concerns worth exploring. In fact, the very premise begs the question, who needs parents when you've got tech taking over? Okay. Let me pause right here before I continue in this article and say Brave Parenting has been saying this for years, that access to advanced technology at young ages is destroying childhood. It is convincing kids that they are on the same level as parents and adults, because if tech provides all the answers and does all the work, then what do parents actually add? What value do they add? What does a parent have that a kid doesn't? Right. Because they don't they don't yeah. see the wisdom. And like if I have if my kid has the same brand new iPhone that I have, there's entitlement. I mean, it is like they literally think that they are equals. Equals with parents. They have everything that the parent has. Well, what you have is not better. There's no yeah. You can all whole, get to this whole, yeah. All the same access, podcast. the same technology. Yeah, and so absolutely. what she said of who needs parents when you've got tech taking over? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the a great question to ask. And to evaluate in our hearts. Well, the article continues saying Megan introduces an artificial intelligence, right? We've talked a little about AI, an AI doll who in time takes over many of the tasks parents do each day. She is a toy meant to help a family, but turns quickly into a horrifying lesson in technology attachment. As the film moves along, Megan shows the audience and the family that owns her the detriments of relying on AI and other tech toys as surrogates for parenting and family bonding. Okay, that quote. The detriment of relying on AI and other tech toys as surrogates for parenting and family bonding. That should hit close to home. How many times do we as parents abdicate our parenting role and simply allow the iPad to entertain, to babysit, to distract, this causes an unhealthy relational attachment to the screen itself. And what we might just call obsession or you know, lighthearted addiction to the screen, the reality is that we all have to own up to is that it really is a unhealthy relationship with the screen. They are in a relationship together. But there should never be a categorically identified relationship with a screen or a tech-related device like a game console, right? You should not be in a relationship with your Xbox. Why? Because we know that human beings thrive in deep and meaningful relationships with other human beings, not with algorithmic driven pieces of technology and machinery that fits nicely into the palm of our hands. Again, I say this is tragic that our kids are developing relationships. And I'm not just talking about this movie. We all know it's true. I wrote that essay. I thought about putting it in there. It's just too long about how my phone's my best friend. Mm. I don't know if you remember that. That was years mm -hmm. ago. But mm -hmm. truly, young people 
feel like their phone is their best friend. They cannot leave its side. They need to be with it at all times. This is tragic. So I want to jump to scripture, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, which asks what partnership can righteousness have with lawlessness and what fellowship can light have with darkness? Well, John MacArthur notes in the John MacArthur Study Bible, which I highly recommend. It's my favorite Bible. I promote it all the time to my high school girls uh, small group (laughs) that I lead, so much so that all of their parents got them some for Christmas, and they're all thoroughly enjoying it too. So just saying. Um, But in my John MacArthur Study Bible, he notes that Christians are not to be bound together with non-Christians in any spiritual enterprise or relationship that would be detrimental to the Christian's testimony within the body of Christ. So Paul uses this illustration of being unequally yoked, referring back to the Deuteronomic law regarding work-related joining together of two different types of livestock. Like you wouldn't put a donkey and an ox together in a yoke and start plowing your fields. Well, the text doesn't imply that Christians cannot have relationships with non-Christians, but that it is impossible under such arrangements for things to be done to God's glory. And this is where I really believe that we brave parents have to be diligent in ensuring our children are developing deep and meaningful relationships with other humans, not tech devices, not with AI, not with a platform full of followers, but deep and meaningful relationships outside of and without technology that, you know, that's this technology that seems like rule their lives. That needs to be outside of that. If it ever begins to look like the only deep and meaning, meaningful relationship your child has is with their phone or with their game console or with their platform of followers, this is being bound together unequally. This is a relationship that will never glorify God. And the content that is engaged in on that phone is not going to glorify God. So no matter how real AI can feel and how advantageous it becomes to our lifestyle, nothing, absolutely nothing can diminish our need for life on life, deep and meaningful relationships. What do you think, Mm. Chelsea? That's good. Well, my first thoughts are I cannot be the only person that is like thoroughly creeped out by AI, right? (laughs) Like I cannot like comment back if you're creeped out too. (laughs) I mean, entertainment has fed us a solid diet of AI gone wrong since the 80s. And now we have like chat GBT, which is free and accessible. And now we've got this movie. And I'm just like, you know, that gif from Zoolander with Will Ferrell screaming, like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Yeah, I deeply connect with that yeah. gif as I wrestle with like AI becoming more and more a part of our culture. I use that I, I use that analogy for a lot of things going on in culture. Like yeah, I feel yeah. like I'm taking crazy pills <laughs> anytime I look at the yeah. news. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I kind of wonder if God in his foreknowledge knew that building in the command to fellowship together, to meet on Sundays, to do life on life would be a way to protect us from falling away into secularism. It's kind of like he built it in as kind of as, as guardrails to protect us from where the rest of the world was going, especially now in this cultural moment. But unfortunately, we have a generation of Christians who believe that church can be done online, who equate face-to-face fellowship with online viewership, and it's just not so. God is in community with the Son and the Spirit, and we are commanded to pursue Him, to follow after Him, and to do what He does. Therefore, community is very much a part of our reality as it is his. 
and it is something we must pursue. I love Hebrews chapter 10. It's probably one of my favorite sections out of the Bible. I'll start at verse 19, which is subtitled, A Call to Persevere in Faith. And it's a fan. I love Hebrews. I love Hebrews 10. I suggest everyone stops what they're doing today and reads it. This is what, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but this is what the author under the inspiration of the Spirit says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but in encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So I'm sure our listeners caught the three let us in these verses. Let us draw near, let us hold on to hope, and let us spur each other towards love. The expositor's commentary makes a point about these three let us phrases that I really wanted to share. You can draw near and you can hope alone, but you cannot love alone. And here's the commentary excerpt. Christians are to provoke one another to love. It is the characteristic New Testament term for a love that is not self-seeking, a love whose paradigm is the cross, and they're referencing 1 John 4.10. This is a most important Christian obligation, and believers are to help one another to attain it. It's interesting that this kind of love is a product of a community or community activity, for it is a virtue that requires others for its exercise. One may practice faith or hope alone, but not love. The readers are to urge one another to good deeds as well as love. The contemplation of the saving work of Christ leads on to good works in the lives of the believers. The expression is left general, but the writer selects as especially important love, and in the next verse, the gathering together of the believers. It's an interesting combination. So that's the expositor's commentary on those verses in Hebrews chapter 10. And I think what we can walk away with is, We need to recognize that the world, those without the knowledge of God and his word, they may embrace technology to levels that erode or even replace relationships. But we Christians, we do not do that. We hold fast to the faith, we draw near to God, and we uphold the importance of face-to-face fellowship for the sake of loving others well. Kelly, the way I look at that is there's no way to get around face-to-face fellowship. It is kind of like the DNA of who we are as Christians. Yeah, and as the world really puts such a a focus on the self and the self-love and the self-care and the self-promotion and self-self-self, it just becomes very easy to be isolated. And as we've said a million times, this isolation, this um, solitary life of just living online, living maybe with AI, whatever that is, everybody's depressed. Everybody's lonely. Everybody's anxious. This isn't working. It isn't working. And we should never allow our kids to fall into this relationship with the screen and not with other humans. Um, Even when friendships are hard, even when relationships are hard, 
you know, I've had so many teenagers and teenage time is hard. It's hard to navigate relationships, but I always just say, no, you need friendships. We, we learn, you, you wrestle through these hard things because life on life relationships are essential. They are essential for life. They are essential for fellowship as believers. Um, whether you're a believer or not, relationships are still needed. The, the longest study done over the past 75 years following the same people as to what determines happiness. I just see, or I just saw a resurgence of this Harvard um, research project appearing in my newsfeed. It is deep and meaningful relationships. It's not success. It's not wealth. It's not fame. It's not any of that. The key to happiness over the course of all the years that they have done this study is deep and meaningful relationships. It's so true. I was listening to oh, who was I listening? I was listening to Chuck. I was listening to Colson Center yesterday. I was catching up on my Friday episodes of um, something, and he said something that was so profound. When we get to the end of our life and we approach God, and we want to hear "Well done," he, he, we are not going to hear "Well done, good and famous servant." Mm. Well done, good and um, successful yeah. servant. Influencing well, servant. Yeah, <laughs> influence. It's no well done, good and faithful faithful servant like that is the crux of it all are we going to be faithful to what god commands in our life and that part of that is face-to-face relationships Mm -hmm. life on life going to church every sunday doing yeah with people Mm -hmm. yes helping people serving people yep absolutely yeah okay we are going to go into our last headline of the day right this is the last one right kelly yes it is like imagine Mm -hmm. anything okay this one talking about how anxiety and depression, we all realize it's going on and it's hurting people. Um, there are three takeaways that we can talk about today um, from the Seattle School lawsuit against big tech. This came out, gosh, not too long ago, sometime last week, if I remember correctly. So Seattle schools, public schools on Friday filed a 91-page lawsuit against the companies behind TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and YouTube in a federal district court. The public school district alleges that students are being recommended harmful content online, exacerbating a mental health crisis, and social media companies are allowing it to happen. So here's the first takeaway. The school system accuses social media platforms of increasing students' anxiety and depression. Now, according to the lawsuit, social media companies have, quote, exploited the vulnerable brains of youth hooking tens of millions of students across the country into positive feedback loops of excessive use and abuse, end quote. Well, duh. Yes. We, yes, this is we exactly this. what's happening. Every, yes. Everybody knows this. Everyone knows it. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, worthy to take them to court or not. Yes, they're exploiting vulnerable brains, not just of youth. They're doing it to adults too. I mean, let's just be honest. The youth are just more susceptible. Mm-hmm. The lawsuit cites a 2021 investigation by the Wall Street Journal in which several teenage girls reported developing eating disorders or relapsing after TikTok promoted extreme diet videos to them. The issue of potentially dangerous content on social media is not a new one. As NPR reported in 2021, Facebook whistleblower Francis Hagan, a former product manager, testified before Congress saying that executives hid research about the risks the company's products posed on kids. Okay, so before we go any further, my immediate question is, why are these kids allowed on social media at all? Why? Yes, the social media giants suppressed their knowledge of what was going on. But for years, psychologists, counselors, doctors, 
teachers, principals, pastors, tech gurus all knew what was going on and have been saying something about it. Brief Parenting has articles written on topics like fubbing, which is phone snubbing, or brexting, breastfeeding and texting, or belfies, butt selfies, that are dating back to 2017. Maybe even earlier. Kel, am I correct on my dates there? Yeah, it's about 2017. Yeah. But nonetheless, all of us for years have been facing a choice whether or not we would let our kids interact with social media. Everyone has been talking about this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, for more than five years, we've been promoting social at 16 in the sense that at 16, we trust kids to work, be functioning, contributing members of society, to drive cars. Their brains are so much more developed than 13, which is only the, you know, obviously the legal age that these companies can collect data on kids. So, so yeah, I mean, my question is, why is the public school system filing the lawsuit? Were mm-hmm. they allowing the use of these social media platforms in the schools? Mm-hmm. You know, or are they just so overwhelmed by the mental health crisis, hindering the actual and practical education of students that they're filing this lawsuit because they're just tired of dealing with the consequences of social media using young people? Mm, like that's a good question because mm-hmm. the the intersection of social media and school yeah we know exists because it carries over right. but it's interesting that a public school would be suing these companies right i guess that's they question someone feels strong enough advocating for the rights of children because who else in a way right. i mean i in a way commend the the school district or public school system or whoever it is seattle um to do so because yeah who else what other big organization is going to stand up for kids and what's happening in regard to social media. Mm -hmm. We need more, more organizations like this doing this. Okay, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the second point from the article, the school system says it doesn't have the resources to manage a crisis made worse by social media. Oh, well, there we go. There's the answer. Yeah, there's, there's your answer. (laughs) In the lawsuit, Seattle Public Schools says the number of students who report feeling so sad or hopeless almost every day for two weeks or more in a row that they stopped doing some usual activities increased by 30% from 2009 when smartphones gained steam to 2019, by which time they'd become ubiquitous. Our students and young people everywhere face unprecedented learning and life struggles that are amplified by the negative impacts of increased screen time, unfiltered content, and potentially addictive properties of social media, said Seattle Public Schools Superintendent Brent Jones in a statement. But the school system says it doesn't have enough staff to treat the growing number of students seeking mental health counseling. So this is the crux of the issue, Kel. This is what Mm -hmm. I see here. And this is why it's so tragic. It was all fun and games until someone got hurt. Or you could say it doesn't matter until it does matter. Now, listen, I know it's incredibly controversial what I'm about to mention, But one of the reasons people in northern states are actually beginning to care about the border crisis is because now it's in their backyard. The border didn't matter until it did matter, until it stared them in the face. So Seattle schools were okay for years and years until a crisis was on their hands. And I have a really hard time with this because the actual victims for years have been the kids. Even when it was just perceived fun, the kids have still been getting hurt. And I really can't help but think of Solomon who said in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2, verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. 
this right here, the lawsuit, the mental health crisis, the schools unable to motivate kids to learn, unteachable children who will inevitably be passed through the system because they can't, they can't hold everyone back. It's all toil. And for what? To be happy? To be pleased in a moment for years upon years? This is what the result is. Mm-hmm. We talked about future realities or we talked about reality and future consequences. This was it, right? Yeah. Like, Yeah, no one wanted to believe it. But no, I mean, there were, like you said earlier, there was so many voices who were saying, I'm not screaming that the sky is falling. Like, this is a real... This is a real issue. This is going to be a real issue. We, the writing is on the wall. So this is what happens when humanity forsakes the God of creation and his unchanging truth about reality and adopts this worldview, this secular worldview of moralistic therapeutic deism, mm-hmm. right? Fancy word that basically it's so pervasive that we don't even realize that it's there. So many Christians hold this worldview, sadly, when they claim that they're Christian. Um, you know, this worldview operates by believing God just wants me to be a good person, right? That's the moralistic portion. I just, mm-hmm. I'm a good person, right? I don't murder anybody. And then the second portion is God just wants me to be happy. You know, that's the therapeutic part of it. So through being a good person, as I define it, and I'm pursuing happiness, you know, God will stay out of my life and not tell me what to do. This is the pervasive ideology that is promoted on social media. It infects our children's brains, and they are so miserably unhappy and unhealthy, they cannot possibly figure out why. But worse, it's infecting the adult's brain. It's infecting the parent's brain. And they're not helping their kids navigate out of this. It's easy. You have forsaken your creator, his moral laws, and truths about reality, and you made yourself the boss of you, right? And frankly, let's be honest, teens make terrible bosses, not just because they're teens, but because their their frontal lobe development does not allow them to make wise, discerning choices under their own guidance, or you know, they do it under the guidance of a global platform of self-promotion. This this idea, this worldview of moralistic therapeutic deism is so pervasive. This is exactly why we have what we have, because we're only pursuing our own truth of what's good, and we're only pursuing what, we make, what makes us happy in this moment. And our poor kids, education is suffering. You want to blame COVID or the lockdowns for the lack of education? That may be a small portion, but the internet, the social media, the fact that they're spending so much time online, mm-hmm. like this school district is recognizing, it is more of an issue. Is it an issue to sue over? I don't know. But what else? You know, I think that people are just, what else are we going to do? We've got to do something to draw attention to the issue. I think the problem is, is so much of parenting has been handed over to the school too. It was, it all, and I think generally from the public school system, it comes from a good intention. Like they're, they're given these kids for eight hours a day and they they see that some of them don't get food at home. So they have programs now to feed kids after school, during school, even early breakfast when I was a kid, I remember, because they, they're stepping in and taking over where the role of the parent should be, right? And it's not the lawsuit isn't from parents. It's coming from the school because their their interest, their product is the kids. Right. And this, this will probably, if we continue this, we're going to get into like a whole, (laughs) because I think this is a podcast in its own, the whole social, emotional learning, um, SEL and what that looks like. Yeah. That's a whole other topic, but it's, it's so true. It's so true. 
Okay, so the last point from the article they say is tech companies have a powerful legal shield, but it's about to be challenged. It's nearly impossible to sue social media companies over the content of their platforms because of a law known as Section 230. It's part of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. It says tech companies can't be held liable for what others have shared on their sites, but that soon could change. The Supreme Court will hear arguments next month in a case that aims to limit Section 230 and put social media companies' recommendation algorithms front and center. Those recommendation formulas are at the heart of the Seattle Public Schools lawsuit too. So again, this is really hard because at some point, as parents, we have to take responsibility. We have to acknowledge that the users, that us as users, we are just as culpable as the tech companies. And it's good to acknowledge that on our part if it leads to repentance. Let me read to you Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. You were taught with regard, with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what Paul has just described is the process of biblical change. So can we parents be resolved to take off our old self, which gratifies itself in the pleasures of entertainment? And I say this to myself as much as I speak it to others, but we have to be so reminded about what we want, why we want to participate in things, who we interact with, what we believe, because Paul just told us that we still carry things from our former life that corrupt us by its deceitful desires. In short, we can be tricked and we have to filter our lives through scripture. That's why it's so important to know the word. But then we have to be renewed in our minds through God's word to find pleasure and satisfaction in our relationship with Christ and serve the kingdom. And then can we please put on humility in the likeness of Christ? In Colossians 3.12, Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And the word humility in the Greek there means the having of a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's moral littleness, and modesty, humility, and lowliness of mind. These are the complete opposites of the personalities most of us find on social media. Being humble and low in mind about ourselves is not going to drive people into depression and anxiousness because it prevents us from promoting ourselves into little gods which long to be worshipped. Because we were not meant for that. We weren't created for that. We can't handle it, which is why we see so much of the mental health crisis in our kids. They can't handle it. But honestly, neither can we. And we have to be sober-minded about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that students in Seattle schools and really all schools, frankly, you know what they need? They need evangelism. (laughs) Students and young people need to hear the gospel and that in Christ, they can be a new creation. Because honestly, I think young people today are ripe for that for the harvest. They have tasted and seen that the world is not good. And they themselves they they view themselves as not good. They're miserable in their own bodies. And you know, they have searched for meaning and understanding on Google and TikTok and Reddit and everywhere else and have turned up only more confusion and more despair. Mm-hmm. You know, they've sought after their own pedestal and tried to be worshiped only to realize that it's as emptying as being unknown. 
Mm-hmm. They are desperate for a new self because they live so, it's so sad, such depressed and, and in such anxious bodies in solitary. They're lonely. You know, that the good news of the gospel has got to sound better than where they are right now. You know, and it's like, who will go? The Lord asks, you know, here I am, send me. Who is going to evangelize and spread the gospel to the lonely, depressed, anxious, and in crisis teenagers all around, all around our country, all around your community? They're in your church. They're in your schools. They're maybe living in your home. They need his good news. That's what it's good news. It is good news. It is good news. And yeah, it might seem like it's falling on deaf ears, but the solutions that they're seeking right now are not working. And if you're a people lover, you'll be a people confronter. I'm just, I'm becoming more and more and more convicted of that. Yeah. Yeah. As tech continues to grow as social media, I don't know. I mean, maybe these lawsuits, maybe the Supreme Court hearings. I mean, maybe this is what some people predict to be the end of social media as we know it as of right now. But right. I mean, maybe, maybe not. But nonetheless, we need to be as as believers equipped and ready to share the gospel to those who are hurting, who are coming off of these platforms broken and depressed. And there are young people. Yeah. And who are coming off of the platform with really shady digital footprints. Let's just be really honest about it. These footprints are not clean and pure. You know, there's so much indulgence that is um, really, really, really immoral, but they have to be, will. they have to, we have to be ready. Like church, we have to be ready to accept all of that and to love them in compassion and kindness, but always, always, always sharing them with them the truth of the gospel, that Christ has redeemed you through his blood. Well, I don't know any other better place to end this episode than right there. So y'all, thanks for tuning in. I hope that this podcast, especially just we talked so much about technology and how it impacts reality right now, how it's impacting how we parent the choices that we have to make, how it's impacting our kids. All of these news headlines all focuses somehow on big tech and its influence and impact on us. So uh, just something to think deeply about and hopefully we guided you in thinking biblically about those things. So share with friends, subscribe, leave us a review. We would love that and it helps other people find the podcast. Until next week, y'all go and be brave. (laughs) 